Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. In Revelation chapter 10, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, last week we considered what it would look like for all hell to break loose on earth, literally. It was a terrifying scene that we saw in Revelation chapter 9 where demons were being released from the bottomless pit, free to torment those on this earth during the tribulation period for five months, but not allowed to kill them. That was the fifth trumpet. And then the sixth trumpet, we saw that uh, these, these demons were allowed to kill people. And it was uh, a tremendous uh, you know, scripture that's difficult to comprehend, and yet the Lord has something important to, to tell us through that chapter. And it is this, that God is all about drawing people to himself. I mean, you can't experience these kinds of things and then wonder that everybody knows where these things are coming from. And yet, we find that not many will turn to the Lord, and yet he's still, in his grace, in his mercy, extending his hand to those who don't know the Lord, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to Christ. It's, like I said last week, one of the saddest portions of Scripture is to read the, the last portion of chapter 9 there where it says that uh, they did not repent of their works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons, the, the idols of, of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And yet, the Lord has something important to, to tell us, you know, as we transition now from chapter 9 to chapter 10. The tide shifts in a way that we find the, another parenthetical pause here in the book of Revelation. So, stand with me. We're going to read our chapter this morning, Revelation chapter 10, as we continue here. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roar, lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in, uh, that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and, and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it will be sweet as honey." And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey to my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. As I was told, you must again prophesy 
about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to come and speak to our lives, speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, draw us to yourself. And uh, we just pray that you give us some understanding of this passage and uh, what it might mean for us. We know that every, every ounce of scripture has some sort of personal significance to us. So use it this morning. Come and teach us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Americans have a serious problem with delays. We have no time for them, right? Listen, we live in a fast-paced world where time is money and delays stop us from achieving our goals. But what if delays were, uh, were beneficial and not a hindrance? What if delays were from God and not from man or from the enemy? What do I mean? Have you ever been delayed at your home or at a, at a place and you're supposed to be somewhere else and, and for whatever reason you're stuck and you can't get there? Maybe it's because you're too busy looking in the mirror and you're trying to get yourself ready and you lost track of time. I know I do that all the time, I, you know, but uh, it still doesn't help. I'm like, oh man, uh, I need all the help I can get. But, but or what, for whatever reason, you're late. And you know how frustrating that is, right? You're like, oh man, I gotta get there. And at, on your way, you encounter a tragic accident that you avoided because you didn't leave exactly at the time that you thought you should have. Listen, God saves us at times through delays. Not only does he save us, but he blesses us. You ever been at an airport and been delayed? Everybody who's ever flown before? Uh, it happens. And we can be frustrated. Our day is wrecked. Oh, man, the whole thing is off. I was going to China one time with my partner, and we were getting ready to take off, and we had a tight schedule. And we got delayed in Nashville Airport. We were sitting there, and my partner was frustrated and, 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 and you know, wow, we're going to be late. And I said, bro, chill out. The Lord knows. He's got this under control. And I wish I did that all the time. I'm only telling you the good stories from my, from about me. But, but I, you know, and he was like, wow, yeah, that's true. God had a point. And here's the thing. It ended up that we got a travel voucher that gave us a couple free tickets because we were delayed. So it was a blessing, really, in disguise. Listen, God uses everything in our lives all the time. Everything that we encounter in life has passed through his hand by his desk, and he uses everything for our purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 says, that God works out everything, not some things, not most things, but everything for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. There's not a single circumstance that you've gone through in your life that is wasted. God is doing something. He uses everything. But here's what can happen oftentimes is that we may not recognize what God is doing in our lives, and then we do something else. We take things for granted. You ever taken delays for granted? Oh, they won't mind. They won't mind. And, and, and that's here, here, Here's what we find in our text today that Although God has been delaying his judgment upon the earth, it won't be forever. Do not take the grace of God for granted. We don't have much time. And that's what we're going to look at in our text today. We find the 
declaration by this angelic being who says, no more delays. That's the title of my message this morning. As we come to chapter 10, we enter into what is called a parenthetical pause. The Lord is taking a break in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet to give the world a moment to breathe. They've just experienced some traumatic things and the Lord, of course, using all of those things to draw all men to himself in this moment, takes a moment to pause. This is the second parenthetical pause that we've encountered in the book of Revelation. The first one we encountered was during the sixth and the seventh seals. Remember, uh, the Lord sent an angel down from heaven and he sealed 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are deployed during the tribulation to be the witnesses for God. There's, they have a special protection over them. They will not die during that time. They will go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Not only that, but then we saw a, a picture of heaven where there were martyrs that had been slain during the tribulation period, praising the Lord and basking in the glory of Christ, like we will be doing one day soon. It was a parenthetical pause. It was the Lord giving the world a break for a moment from his judgments. But here's the thing. Do not take those breaks for granted. Because as we see today, the Lord says, there's a time when the end will come. No more delaying. What? Delaying the mysteries of God. We'll talk about it at the end of the chapter here. But ultimately what he's saying is Christ is coming. And here's what you need to understand about the second coming of Christ. He's not coming on a donkey into Jerusalem to proclaim peace. He's coming on a war horse with a sword. And that's what is about to transpire. The Lord is saying, no more games, no more. I, I, I'm trying to draw all men to myself through these, these 14 judgments that have happened already, or 13. As I blow the seventh trumpet, the end is now come. And what we know, because we have the rest of the story, is that as that seventh trumpet is blown, we find another seven series judgment called the seven bowl judgments. And man, if you thought the wrath of God was treacherous, wait until this happens. This is the wrath of the wrath of God. Like this is where it gets just beyond comprehension. It's what, this is the point in time in which Jesus said, if these days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. It's going to be that, it's the second half of this seven-year tribulation period called the Great Tribulation Period. And it will be a sight to see. This is the longest parenthetical pause that we find in the book of Revelation. It's the, you know, right, right before the Lord says, hey, no more delays, the time has come, I'm gonna, you know, Jesus is coming back. He takes the longest moment to pause. And we'll see next week, uh, that he will deploy two witnesses from heaven to earth. They will live on this earth. They will be uh, a witness for the Lord. They will die. They will raise again from the dead, and the Lord will use them. And here's what's interesting about that. At that moment, at the end of chapter 11, we find that God uses that, and, and many people come to Christ in that moment through the death of these two witnesses who have raised from the dead. They're not going to come to Christ, you know, through the cosmic events that are happening on earth and, and demons coming out of the earth or anything like that. But these two witnesses, they die, and then all of a sudden some people wake up and go, hey, 
I should probably do something about this. I should maybe listen to uh, these 144,000 people who are, you know, telling me about Jesus. I should probably come to Christ. And that's what ends up happening. But so here we find ourselves at the beginning of this parenthetical pause and we encounter a mighty angel and a scroll that is to be eaten. First, we encounter this mighty angel in verse one. John sees this, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he has an interesting appearance. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a scroll open in his hand and, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So John sees another mighty angel. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can circle that word another and write out to the margin of your Bible, another of the same kind. We've encountered this word before. What this is declaring to us is something about this angelic being, his identity, because we don't know his name. So the Lord says he's another mighty angel, another of the same kind. He is an angelic being. Many commentators believe this is Jesus because of the appearance of this person, of the authority that this, this angelic being has and such, but it is not Jesus, although he looks like Jesus, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus, contrary to popular belief, was never an angel, will never ever be an angel. He created all angels. Jesus is the creator of all things. He can't, if, if he's an angel, then how can he create himself? He can't. He, he created all things. You might say in your mind, yeah, but he's called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And I would tell you, I want you to focus on a word that many people just blow, blow right by, and it's the word the. That is singular. There is no other one like him. It's a title. It's to represent Jesus as an angel. You know, again, not necessarily angelic being, but, but a messenger of God. And what we find is every time the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament speaks, he's not speaking on behalf of God, but he's speaking as God. So we know that this is what is called, a, these are called Christophanies in the Old Testament. They are pre-earthly um, uh, appearances of Jesus before he became a baby through Mary and came into the world. There's many of them in the Old Testament. They, the writers of the Old Testament referred to him as the angel of the Lord, but he's not a created being. He's God in the flesh. And here we find this, this not, there's no way that this is Jesus because Jesus is not another angel. He's not another of the same kind. If the writer here, John, wanted to refer to Jesus as an angelic being, or if this was Jesus, he would have used a different Greek word that would meant another from a different kind, but he didn't. So we know this in an angelic being. Super important. I know you're like, all right, well, let's get going here. So we find here that there is something that is important, though, regarding this angelic being. He's mighty. He's mighty. He's just not an angel, but he's a mighty angel. Now, according to Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, all angels are mighty and powerful. All of them are. And if an angel were to materialize before your eyes, you would fall on your face. 
Their presence, they've been in the presence of God. They carry the presence of God wherever they go, and they would cause you to be frightfully, you know, just reverent on the floor before them. How do we know? Because we see that in the scriptures. Every time an angelic being is presented to a human being, they're not slapping high fives. They're on their face, and the guy's like, dude, get up. Don't worship me. Get up. Don't, don't do that. Why? Because they carry the presence of God with them. Why does this angel look like Jesus? Because he's been in the presence of Jesus. He looks like Jesus because he's been in the presence of Jesus. So that goes to show you and I, as we are in the presence of the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord, as we bask in his glory, we take his glory on. We take his appearance on. And that's what we find here. This mighty angel is, uh, the word mighty angel is uh, actually occurs three times in the book of Revelation. And there's something important about this. We find it first in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Remember that? It was the mighty angel that proclaimed that. Then we'll find in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, that it will say, Then a, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And then, of course, we have the, uh, the occurrence here in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, where it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Why is this important? Because every time that phrase, mighty angel, is mentioned in the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, there is something important that's proclaimed from that mighty angel. This mighty angel has, it's, it's another of the same kind in terms of it's an angelic being in its person, but it has a different purpose. This angelic being to me has a specific call to be the proclamator of important news in heaven and on earth. We see that in the book of Revelation. There are three things I want to point out regarding this mighty angel, that he was mighty first in appearance. He says that he came wrapped in a cloud. If you're trying to make uh, an epic entrance anywhere, I would suggest trying to find a cloud, wrap yourself in it, and show up. And I think that people would be like, wow, look at that. They're in a cloud. Where'd you get the cloud? I, I don't know. I, God gave me the cloud. He gave me this cloud. So uh, here we find this angel coming in epic form. I mean, nobody shows up in a cloud. Of course, I'm joking around. The, there is significance in, in the fact that this angel came wrapped in a cloud. Clouds are representative of the presence of God. We know in the Old Testament that it was by a pillar of cloud that the Lord led the children of Israel in the wilderness, you know, by day. It was by a pillar of cloud there. It was, it was the cloud that came and sat upon the tent of meetings where, remember Joshua said, I don't ever want to leave the presence of God. It was that cloud that descended upon the tent. It was the cloud that descended upon the uh, holy of holies that meant, that meant God was in that place. It was the cloud that descended upon the Mount Sinai, this thunderous, lightning, fiery cloud that descended on there. It suggests the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament. But there's something else that clouds represent in the New Testament. When you think about clouds, you think about the second coming of Christ, do you not? It, it says in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended, the angels told his apostles that Jesus would come just like he was taken up. How was he taken up? In the clouds. Of course, we know Jesus is coming back on the clouds. 
And, you know, this is representative, I believe, this angelic host coming wrapped in a cloud. That time has now come for Jesus to come riding on the clouds. And we know that Revelation chapter 1-7 tells us, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And listen, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This mighty angel comes in epic fashion to declare that judgment is now about to come on the earth. Because as I mentioned, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back with peace. He's coming back with a sword. It's war. He's coming to set this world straight. He's coming to take his throne on this earth. And he will do so in violent fashion, folks. I don't think we comprehend it. I don't comprehend it. I read it. I don't understand exactly what that's going to look like. But what I know is it is not going to be good for those who are here. It is going to be a, a, a treacherous situation that happens. Not only does this angel mighty in appearance because of the cloud wrapped around it, but also, check it out, it has a rainbow over his head. Now, this just it isn't just an accent piece for the outfit. I know that you guys are thinking, oh, look how pretty that is. You know, I, it probably is pretty, but this isn't uh, uh, the, an accent. This rainbow represents something else. And we know from the Old Testament that the rainbow in, uh, in the Old Testament represents the faithfulness of God to his promises. Remember, in the judgment, when, when God rained down judgment upon the earth and he flooded the earth, it had never rained before, by the way. They'd never, that's why they didn't believe in it. Noah spent forever, hundred some years building the ark, proclaiming the judgment of God coming and nobody listened. And then the earth was flooded. And then the Lord said, I will never flood the earth again. And he gave the sign of that. It was, it was a sign that, of, that he is faithful to his promises. I do what I say and I, and I will be faithful to those things. Um, we, we also see that it's that, that covenant uh, that was made there unconditionally, man did nothing to deserve the covenant that God made with them with, in the sign of the rainbow. Uh, you know, this is representative of the mercy of God. The mercy of God. What is, what is the mercy of God? We just sang a bunch of songs about the mercy of God. The mercy of God, listen, is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve, but mercy is being released from something that you do deserve. Does that make sense? So mer the mercy of God is God saying, you deserve this, but I'm not going to do that. In other words, I'll never flood the earth again, even though mankind deserves that. It's an unconditional promise that God has made. There's something interesting in that, that the, the mercy of God, if you read through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and you see during these judgment periods where God is judging the world, judging the children of Israel, uh, judging the world in the book of Revelation, his mercy is always present. I think that's interesting. I think that's representative in this angelic being coming with this rainbow. God's mercy is always present in his judgment. Why? Because he desires that no man would perish but all would come to repentance. His desire is for man to be saved. You know, the Bible tells us he finds no pleasure in the de death of the wicked. It is an amazing thing. Contrary to popular belief, God is not this old angry man in heaven that is longing to just unleash on this earth from this wayward world 
thinking like, I can't wait until I get an opportunity to just unleash, right? Even though that's how we think sometimes. That's not God. God does everything in love and in mercy and in grace. He doesn't relinquish punishment because he's loving or merciful or gracious, but in the midst of all of that, he is still displaying his mercy and grace. I challenge you to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and look for every moment where the Lord gave his mercy during his judgments. Look at, look at David. David numbered the people. Let's see how powerful I am. And the Lord said, hey, David, because you've done that, I'm going to judge you and this entire nation. But his mercy was present. He let David choose the judgment. Like, why would you do that, Lord? Because he's merciful. He's gracious. And David said, I would rather fall in the hands of a merciful God than the hands of man. God's mercy is always present in his judgment, folks, and we can see that. He is a loving God, he's a good, good father, and he is at work to draw people to himself, even in the midst of his judgments. Next, we see that this angelic host had the face that shines like the sun. You think of the, the, the picture we have of Moses, who's coming down from Mount Sinai, and, and he just has been in the presence of the Lord, and his face is glowing to the point that people are freaked out by him. Like, whoa, dude, what's wrong with you? No big deal, just been with Jesus. You know, just been up on the mountain with Jesus. And it, it was interesting how uh, there is something about being in the presence of the Lord that it changes even your physical features. You ever seen that with somebody? You're sitting across from them, they're like, there is something holy about this person, man. I mean, there is some sort of presence with this person. Like, there are, there are people that I've sat across that I'm like, dude, they have like the eyes of a lion. You know, now you know what's going on in my mind when we're having a conversation. Like, this person looks like a lion. I'm, I mean, but, but seriously, you can sense that, can you not? Like, when you're with somebody who you know, maybe you don't even know them, but you know, like, wow, there's just, a, there's just some sort of a, an anointing on this person. There is something special about this person here. You know what it is? They've been in the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus doesn't just transform you internally, but it transforms you externally. And people can see that. They can visualize that and they can see like, wow, look at that person, man. They're, this guy, this angel had the face of the sun. Remember when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter seven? And it says that his face in that moment, in the presence of the Lord, his, he had the face of an angel. And imagine just the glowing that happened in that moment. Spend time with Jesus and you'll look just like him. He also had, uh, this angel had legs like pillars of fire. We know that the legs of pillars of fire, Jesus has that represented in the first chapter of Revelation. And we know that that means judgment. Legs of fire, the judgment is now coming down on this, on this earth. And so we, we see the, the, the mightiness in the appearance of this angel. Now we see, secondly, that this, this angel is mighty in authority. It's interesting, he has a scroll in his hand. And not only that, but when he comes down, he places his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This is indicating that he is a mighty messenger of God that has some sort of authority over all of the earth and that he is about to call out judgment over all of the earth. 
He's not only mighty in appearance and authority, but he's also mighty in voice, as we find here that he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and seven thunders sounded. When a lion roars, do you know why they roar? They roar because they're ready to attack. They roar because they're ready to go into war. Here, this angelic host standing on what is representative of the entire earth, land and sea, having the authority, the scroll in his hand, whatever, we'll talk about that in a second, what that might be or what it might not be. But what we see is there's an authority there and this angelic host is now roaring, saying judgment has now come. The Lord is now coming. And as a response to this roar, seven thunders sounded, not from him, not from this angelic host, but from somebody else. The, sand, the, the seven thunders, being seven being the number of what? Completion. Complete, uh, seven complete thunders sounding. I believe that this is the voice of the Lord here. Why? Because in the Old Testament, we find that God's voice is representative by thunders. And that it's authoritative. Psalm 29 declares this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Saran like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. And again, in Psalm 18, verse 13, the Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals, of fire. What we know is that after hearing the seven thunders, John is ready to write down what he hears. He's been commanded by Jesus in the very first chapter, write down what you hear and what you see. So of course he sees this, he's like, whoa, this seems important. Let me write this down. And he's immediately stopped. He's immediately stopped by a voice in heaven who we presume to be God, who says, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Here, th this, this moment is such that John feels it's important to write down, and yet the Lord stops him. This is similar to what happened with Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel was given this vision of judgment that was going to come down upon the world. And the Lord said, Daniel, seal it up, meaning it's not for you. Don't write it down. It's not for you. He, he tells Daniel in Daniel chapter 26 and 27, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Whatever God revealed to Daniel in this moment, put him on his sickbed. He didn't get a virus. He didn't get, it wasn't a physical sickness. This was a sickness from what he had seen, 
from what was revealed to him. It was so traumatizing what he saw that he did not fully comprehend that he's like, oh my gosh. And, it's, and he was sick, literally in a physical sense. You ever heard news that just rocked you physically, made you physically ill, like you want to vomit, like curled your stomach up? And he told Daniel, I know you don't understand this, but seal it up. It's not for you. And now the Lord tells John, in these seven thunders, John, don't write it down. I don't want it. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us why. We don't know what's said, even though there are many who will try and (laughs) tell you, oh, yeah, this is what the seven thunders were. We don't know. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. We don't know what the seven thunders are. We could presume that it's the next seven bold judgments. We could do all this kind of angling to try and figure this out, but the Lord simply says, do not write it down. So deal with that. It's interesting that oftentimes we do not like being in a position where we cannot figure out what it is that these things are saying. Here's a word of advice for you. When there is a period in a scripture, don't change it to a comma. Do not try and make it say something that you think it might say. Use scripture to interpret scripture, yes, but do not try and make it say something that it does not say. Sometimes we just have to let it say what it says and be okay with that. If the Lord wants you to know, he'll tell you. And here's the thing, that doesn't mean that we, we don't try and, you know, be Bereans and look in the scriptures to try and figure this stuff out because there may be an answer to that somewhere else in scripture. We use scripture to interpret scripture. But I tell you, there is no answer for this. There is no other scripture that is, is in reference to what these seven thunders might be. So we're okay with just leaving it there. John, the Lord told John not to write it down. He went, to, he went to the grave with it, folks. If you go to him in heaven and you say, hey, John, what were those uh, seven thunders? He's going to say, hey, you know what? You're on a need-to-know basis, and guess what? You don't need to know. I'm like, whoa, thanks, John. What's more important about what those things, what was being said is what happens next. Verse 5, it says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea that, and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This angel, whoever it is, is now standing again with one foot on the sea and one on the land. And he raises his hand and he begins to make an oath calling God as his witness, the one who lives forevermore, the creator of all things. And he's saying, whatever I am about to say is going to come to pass and he's my witness. And then he says, there will be no more delays. That suggests to us that God has been delaying up to this point. The Lord has been patient with the world. God has been, um, you know, holding back. And we know this to be true because 
uh, in Revelation chapter 5, when the martyrs are, who, who reside underneath the throne of God are crying out, how long, O Lord, before you judge this world? And the Lord responds to them and says, just wait a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. But here's the deal. There's a time. There is a time. God knows the time. And the time is now. No more delays. God isn't going to um, contend with man forever. And so he tells this angelic being on behalf of the Lord, makes this declaration that what will come out of the seventh trumpet will be the end. Will be the end. And of course, we know that out of the seventh trumpet comes seven bold judgments that are far worse than anything we've ever seen. thus far into this book. And we've seen a lot, but it's nothing like what is about to happen. In this last three and a half years of this tribulation period, God, it will be a period where there is no relenting. God just full throttle pouring out his wrath on this world. John, after hearing this declaration made, goes on and He is told by this voice to to go and ask for the scroll and to eat it. Look at verse 8. Then the voice voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the, the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So whatever is contained in that scroll is sweet to the mouth but bitter to the stomach. What does that mean? It's a hard pill to swallow is what it means. You know, the word of God is sweet to the taste, but sometimes it's bitter to the stomach in terms of, you know, as a believer, we can see things one way, but, but you think about the, during this time, the tribulation period, we understand. We're excited. It's sweet to... Uh, our mouths because we know that it represents the coming of Christ and, and this, the millennial reign and then obviously the, the new heavens and the new earth being created. We know the end story. And so, of course, when we read this, we're like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is, this is, this is sweet to the mouth. But when you consider what's going to happen to the people here, maybe the people you love, maybe your family members, who knows if it's this generation or the next generation to come. I believe it's very soon. But regardless, there will be people that will go through this and it will not be so sweet for them. And so it's kind of bitter to the stomach to think about the, the end goal here of what, what happens during, during this time. So whatever is written on this scroll, we don't know what it is, although there, there's plenty of, plenty of speculation as to what it is, but again, it doesn't tell us what it is. So we're just like, okay, what we know is that um, it does turn John's stomach a little bit. So we have to assume that there's some sort of, it's, an, it's, it's God revealing his wrath upon the world in some way, shape, or form. And he, he tells John here the purpose. He, he, when he, he eats the scroll, obviously when it, when it means he eats it, what does he mean? He's like, hey, go take the scroll and eat it. Really? You want me to eat that? He's like, yeah, eat it. What he's talking about is not physically eating it, but chewing it up and swallowing it and digesting what it's saying, coming to some understanding of it. And then he's told to go and pass it on. He says that you must go and speak, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. 
Like in other words, this is just not some little special message for you, John, but you need to digest what's being said here. Chew on it, digest it, and then go share it with other people. I think there's a parallel to what John is supposed to do here in the book of Revelation and what you and I are supposed to do as believers in this world. We're called to be students of the word of God. We're called to consume the word like a meal, to chew on it, to understand what it's saying, to swallow it down, and then we're called to go and pass it on. Listen, there is no other book in the Bible that will strengthen you spiritually. Do you know that? The Bible is our meal. Now, listen, I'm not saying that there aren't other books that have been written by, other, by people who write about the Bible. That's fine. That, that, there, that, there is some use of that. But the meal is in the word of God, not in the words of man. And that's what we need to understand. That's why it's so important we read the Bible itself. And we don't just read about the Bible from other people who have written about the Bible, but we read the Bible. The Bible is your meal. It is known as the spiritual milk that babies need. It's also known as the spiritual meat that people that are growing need. It's, it's everything that we need. It's a complete meal. It's got all your flat and your carbs and, you know, your protein all packed into one here, you know. You want to be spiritually healthy, you need to consume the right food. And here's what happens with Christians, I think. Many people neglect reading the Word of God, so they don't read it enough, and so they're, they're, they're spiritually weak in the sense that they're, they're, they're not really much earthly use to the Lord witness-wise and such because they don't have anything to give out because they're not consuming the right thing. Or the opposite is true, that we could be consuming the Word of God all the time, but we do nothing with it. That, to me, is the, the epitome of a bodybuilder who's like, oh man, I get all, get all these nutrients into me and I've got to get all this food in me and uh, you know, I'm going to eat the right portion of carbs and fat and all this kind of stuff and I'm going to get myself all the fuel that I need to be built up strong. And then they never go to the gym. You know what happens to somebody like that? Here you go. This is what happens. You get fat. The point of consuming a meal is for energy. Did you know that? When you bless your meal, don't you add, Lord, thank you for this bountiful harvest we have before us. Would you nourish our bodies so that we can be fit to fulfill your will? Isn't that the point? Like we, we're consuming food because it gives us energy to go out and do the things that we need to do. Plus, it tastes really good too, so you have that. But... But the reality of it is, is that when you're consuming the word of God, but you're not doing anything with it, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's, it's meant to be given out to people, folks. Like, you don't think it's a coincidence that you read something in the word of God and then you come across somebody in your path later that day and it's like, I was just reading something about this. Yeah, it was for that purpose. God wants to use his word to strengthen you in a moment so that you can pass it on to somebody else. It's, it's, listen, it's, there's two dangers. Not reading the word at all or, or very rarely or reading it and doing nothing with it. There's a balance in it, folks. We need to read the word of God, 
digest what it's saying, and then give it back out. I love the picture in Nehemiah chapter 8. Do you know that in this time period, the children of Israel coming out of the Babylonian captivity, and they've been released. 70 years, they've been in Babylon without the word of God. They've been meeting and whatnot, but, but here's what's interesting. They, they all come to the center. Of, I'm assuming they come to this meeting place wherever it was in, in Jerusalem, and they, and, and they build Ezra a platform. Ezra stands before the people, and he opens the word of God, and he reads it all day long, and it says that he gave them understanding. Now, here's what you need to understand. He couldn't have done that. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit working through him, but he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit at that point. He was maybe, maybe had the epi experience, the upon experience of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, but not the, the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit like we have, the sealing, I should say. The Holy Spirit didn't live with him forever. He came and went in the Old Testament. But he, he caused people to understand the word of God. You can't do that unless you spend time in the Word of God and you read it for yourself, digest it, and then you're able to explain it to somebody else. It's so important, man. We say it all the time. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. And so here we are just religiously reading our Bible and then we go and live our life and sometimes we don't do anything with what we read. I want to encourage you. Whenever you open your Word, look for an opportunity that day to apply what you read, to apply what you read, to share it with somebody. You know, God wants to strengthen you spiritually, but he also wants you to pass that on to somebody else, whether it's through social media. Listen, you have more opportunities than any other generation that's ever lived on planet Earth because we have digital format that we can send anything and everything out and let people know about the Lord. There's not another generation that has ever lived in the history of the world that has more opportunities than us to go out and share the gospel with people. Be the Ezra's of your generation. Stand up. Give understanding of the word of God, but you have to understand it yourself to do that. John, he was told to go and take the scroll from the, uh, the angel. He took it. The angel tells him, eat it. He ate it. And... And then God tells him, you're going to prophesy what was given to you. It's the word of God. Be a student of the word. Be, be somebody who, who spends time with the Lord and, and then giving it back out to people. Amen. Will you pray with me? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.